Bob Goff is a Christian lawyer and an activist who, as you saw in that video, wrote a book called Love Does. And the author is a wonderful storyteller who recounts dozens of episodes from his life, his very eventful life, in which he has the opportunity to show, demonstrate people uh, the love of God. Uh, there's a time, for example, when he actually gets in a car crash, he's T-boned by another driver, and he is thrown 30 feet from his Jeep. He's okay, but he keeps sending the other driver flowers to let her know that he's okay. Uh, there's the time that he decides to take each of his kids, when they turn 10 years old, on a trip to wherever they want to go, just to shower them with fatherly devotion. There's a time when he decides on a tip to just fly to Uganda and help free 72 young boys from miserable prison conditions where they're being held on very minor crimes. And there's the time where he and his children sit down at the kitchen table and actually just write get-to-know-you letters to hundreds of world leaders in which they offer to get to know these people as friends. And actually dozens of, of, of leaders take them up on it. So Bob and his children fly around visiting uh, prime ministers and presidents, getting to know these people, and, and delivering them uh, keys, copies of keys to the front door of their family house in case, quote, they want to come over for a sleepover. And at least one world leader takes them up on it. Now, how does Bob Goff, Bob Goff, an ordinary lawyer with an unimpressive background and resume amass such extraordinary stories. Well, that's the point of the book. He lives a life of action. It's not enough to tell somebody God loves them. It's not enough to just be a loving person. Love acts. Love does. And when you resolve to do the love of God, God takes you up on it. You end up with some wild and crazy stories as God, who is a God of love, takes you on an adventure of love. That's the lesson of love does. Any of us can live a life worthy of publication, if that's the goal, if we just do the love of God. This is actually the point of the passage from the Bible that I want to study with you together this morning. As you might know, we are in an extended study of the Book of Romans here at Rooftop in a series that we are currently calling Morph. Uh, Romans, if you don't know, is a very big, important book in the New Testament. It was written by a guy named Paul. Paul was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. He was a first-century Christian missionary. He traveled around the Mediterranean, starting churches, preaching the gospel. He really wanted to visit the Christian church in the capital city of Rome. So he writes them a nice long letter in which he introduces himself and, and summarizes for them uh, the message of Christianity that he wants to come discuss with them, them upon his arrival. Now, <clears throat> For the past year or so, we've been actually studying Romans 1 through 11. Now, in Romans 1 through 11, uh, Paul sort of lays out what basic Christians believe about all sorts of important things. God, judgment, Jesus, sanctification, uh, justification, salvation, Holy Spirit. Uh, but in Romans chapter 12, we get to what a lot of people understand is the practical application section of Romans. It's like the last section of Romans. And in the practical application section of Romans, Paul talks about how what is true, what is true about the gospel, what is true about Christianity should change us. Because what is true about the gospel should change us. That's why we're calling this series Morph, because Paul says 
in chapter 12, verse 1, uh, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the Greek word that Paul uses there for transform is the word morph. Right. To be a Christian is to morph, is it's to change, is to transform. In fact, if you're a Christian and you've, you're kind of basically the same person you've always been, very good chance you're not actually a Christian. Because Christians change. And if you're not a Christian and you want to be a Christian, yay. But just so we're clear, you're going to have to change. You're going to have to morph. And let's be honest, that's not something that a lot of people want to do. Now the good news here is that as Donnie said a couple weeks ago, Change is possible. People actually can change. People do change. There is power in the gospel uh, to change us. How does it happen? As Paul says, we are transformed. We are changed as the power of Jesus, the message of Jesus, renews and transforms our mind. And perhaps the biggest way that the gospel should change us is by transforming us into people who love. And not just people who think about love, not just people who feel love, but people who do it. Because real love, it, it, it does. So this is the subject of Paul's words in Romans 12, 9 through 13, which is our passage for the morning. So let me go ahead and share his words with you, after which we will discuss them. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, Faithful in prayer, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Now, in this relatively short passage, Paul actually gives us a list uh, of commandments, a list of instructions, ethical imperatives, things that he understands Christians uh, should, should do. There's about eight or ten things to do here, depending on how you split them up. He actually keeps going on and giving people more things to do, and we'll, and we'll talk about those things in subsequent weeks. But there's actually scholarly debate here about what exactly Paul is thinking as he gives us these instructions. They, in a certain sense, they actually sound kind of random, like random things that Christians should do. You know, share with others, uh, honor people above yourselves, uh, love each other as uh, brothers. Uh, practice hospitality, just kind of random things that Christians should do. But there is, and there is a certain randomness here, but there actually is a unifying theme tying them together. What's the theme? Love. As Paul writes at the very top, love must be sincere. And then actually over the next few chapters, this remaining section of Romans, he actually keeps coming back to the theme of love, as he does in chapter 13. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And as he does in chapter 14, act in love towards your brother and sister. These final few chapters in Romans are sort of headed by love. Love is, in fact, a theme that Paul hammers in his writing in general. 
Paul has a, a reputation among theologians as being the apostle of grace or the apostle of faith, but I think a strong argument can be made that if Paul has an identity, it's as the apostle of love. I mean, that's one of the more prominent themes in his writing. Uh, Paul wrote perhaps the most famous words that have ever written been written about love. You might have heard his words about love in 1 Corinthians 13. You might have heard them at a wedding or two or three or 37. 1 Corinthians 13 about love. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I, I gain nothing. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Paul is the apostle of love. The Bible is a book of love. Romans, this section of Romans is all about love, and, and each of these ethical imperatives are specific expressions of what love must look like. But this is not just any old love, it's about God's agape unconditional love. Not the fake love that we see and, and hear about in our world today. The Bible actually, you might have heard this before, but for those of you that don't know it, the Bible actually uses the New Testament in Greek. And Greek actually uses like four different words for love. Greek is a very rich language with a lot of nuance. In English, there's one word for love. It's the word love. Uh, but English is actually a, a, a boring, difficult language. Greek has a lot of nuance to it, and there's like four Greek words for love that are all translated love, and they all have different shades of meaning. And the type of love Paul is talking about here is the most supreme type of love. It's agape love, which is unconditional, divine love, love that loves no matter what. That's real love. And there's a lot of imposters to love in the world today. People throw the word love around, but they don't really know what they're talking about. A lot of times when we say we love, we, we mean that we just kind of really, really like something. Or when we tell somebody that we love them, we just mean that we like making out with them in the basement. But romantic feelings and general fondness for things are not the sort of love Paul is talking about. He's talking about divine love, unconditional love, love that loves no matter what. That's the way God loves, loves us. That's the way we're called to love each other. If I could put it this way, Paul is talking about love for reals. That's how kids talk these days, right? For reals. If someone says something, you know, that you're not sure you believe, you say, for reals? And they'll say, yeah, for reals. <laughs> Paul's here describing love for reals. What is love for reals? Well, love for reals is righteous. Love for reals is enduring. Love for reals is affectionate. Love for reals is totally legit. And love for reals is sacrificial. Love for reals. And what I want to do with the rest of my time is make a quick comment about each one of those. Uh, before we close with communion this morning, I really wish I had time to kind of go into each one of those points a little bit more, or I wish that reals only had three letters, but we don't. <laughs> And it doesn't. Uh, this is one of those rare five-point sermons that I tell Jeremy and Donnie and Jacob to never deliver. Uh, do as I say and as I do. At least we're not, like, talking about love for realsies. <laughs> I could do it, though. So what does love for reals look like? 
First, love for reals is righteous. In verse 9, Paul writes, Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Hate what is evil, cling, hold on fast to what is good. Love that is for reals loves good things, righteous things. It clings to righteousness. It hates evil things. You can be a person filled with love and still have hate in you. In fact, the more you love, the more you hate. Because people who learn to love what is godly learn to hate, and I mean hate what is not godly. Real love loves good things, things like friendship and nature and church and worship and marriage and children and animals and sunsets and libraries and the Bible and freedom and baseball and good government and good comedy. These are good things. Love them. Cling to them. True love loves good things, and real love hates evil things. Not evil people, evil things. Paul doesn't say hate, Paul doesn't say hate who is evil. He says hate what is evil. I can hate abortion. I don't hate abortionists. I can hate racism. I don't hate racists. I hate pollution. I don't hate polluters. At least I shouldn't. Love for reals is righteous. It loves good things and hates evil things. Part of learning how to love is learning how to hate. I I know the bumper sticker. I know it says hate is not a Christian family value. I get it. Point taken. But not so sure. It kind of depends on what we're talking about. Love for reals is righteous. Also, love for reals is enduring. As Paul says in verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Be joyful in hope, uh, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. This is actually one of my family's uh, theme verses these days. And the idea here is that love doesn't give up. Love for reals keeps on hoping. Love for reals is patient. Love for reals is faithful. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 100, the Lord is good and his love endures for a short time. His faithfulness continues for a handful of generations. Sorry, no. The Lord is good. His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Love for reals is enduring. Love not for reals is not so enduring. It is short-lived. It runs out. And that is how many of us love. Uh, this past week, my wife, Michelle, and I, we actually celebrated our 22nd wedding anniversary. <clears throat> uh, 22 years. Um, it's actually an event because um, I've now been married longer than I was alive prior to meeting Michelle. Does any, that, did anybody follow that? Uh, like, I'm 44, I've been married 22 years, so, and I don't remember a lot of the early years of my life, so I've now been married, like, as long as I was alive prior to Michelle. These are things that bored married guys think about when they lie awake at night. Uh, it has been a, a, a long score and two years, a, a hard score and two years, a, a good score. Uh, we've had ups, we've had downs. Honestly, some of our downs have been down enough that they would have definitely led to divorce for many other couples. Michelle and I are both terrible sinners, and when terrible things happen, when terrible sinners hook up. (laughs) But we knew what we signed up for. We agreed at the outset that divorce was not an option. We were going to stick it out, 
no matter what, until death do us part. Lots of couples don't. I know divorce is difficult and complicated. I don't want to make anybody feel bad. But I also know that nobody gets married in order to get divorced. The average marriage these days lasts nine years. That's one year longer than a two-term president. We grow bored and disinterested. We don't have the energy to love others through thick and thin. And and it's not just marriage, right? We are short-termers in all kinds of ways. After nearly uh, 24 years of of vocational ministry, I would say that the average person sticks around at a church maybe a few years. Hopefully you know as well as I do that you cannot be part of an enduring church community by giving it a year or two. As human beings, almost by definition, we are short-termers. This is not love. God does not love us for a fortnight, or a score, or three years, or nine. God loves us forever. His faithfulness continues to all generations. He loves us through conflict, and through boredom, and through disobedience. Love is commitment. This, this week, my wife Michelle and I celebrated 22 years, but my parents, they actually had an anniversary this, this week, too. They celebrated this week 49 49 years. Thank you for that tepid applause for my parents' 49-year accomplishment. Uh, My parents are not necessarily the most lovey-dovey people. I have never caught them making out in the kitchen, for example. And if I did, I completely blocked it out, and I'm so glad for that. (laughs) But they are devoted And that's what love is. Love sticks it out. Love for reals is enduring. Thirdly, love for reals is affectionate. As Paul writes in verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. I mentioned earlier that in Greek there's several words for love, and uh, the word Paul uses here is actually not agape. It's the word um, Philadelphia. Uh, which is maybe best translated, uh, brotherly affection. It's uh, the name for which the town in Pennsylvania was named, right? Pittsburgh. Uh, (laughs) I know, it's Scranton. Uh, (laughs) But it was, uh, Philadelphia was actually named Philadelphia for a reason. It was founded by a guy named William Penn. You might recognize that name. Uh, William Penn was a Quaker. Quakers are a part of a a Christian denomination that believes... at the center of their theology, that all of God's people are spiritual siblings. And William Penn wanted Philadelphia to be a place of brotherly love, where God's people love each other. This is is why, you know, the sports fans in Philadelphia are such kind-hearted, loving people, right? (laughs) Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. that's That's what Paul says. And what's kind of important to recognize here is that that meant something even bigger back in the first century to love one another as brothers and sisters. I mean, in today's day and age, family is important kind of. It's, you know, I swear by my family as far as it goes. I mean, in the West, in the modern era, we are just so individualistic. But in the ancient world, family was it. 
uh, everything. It was expected that you, you give up everything for your kin, uh, defending their honor with your life if necessary. So when Paul says, be devoted to one another and brotherly love, he's, like, he's saying something. He's saying that the people of God are as much a family as the tightest-knit first-century biological clan. And we should be as affectionate toward and devoted to each other as ancient families were. Now, I know treating each other as brothers and sisters is, uh, does not sound that appealing, right? I had two brothers and a sister. I get it. Uh, we treated each other terribly. I probably treated my siblings worse than I have anybody in my life, and vice versa. <laughs> Brotherly love seems like a contradiction. But my siblings and I know that when the chips are down, we would do anything for each other. Uh, We have promised to watch each other's children if we die. Uh, We pay for each other to go on vacation if somebody's having a down year. We drive hundreds of miles out of the way to see each other. For all the grief we give each other, that's what brothers and sisters do. Paul's point is that this is what Christians do too. This is what rooftoppers should do. Love each other with brotherly affection. That person that you're sitting next to, that you happen to sit down next to this morning, is not just some random stranger that you you sat down next to. That person, and I am not speaking metaphorically, is your brother, is your sister. Do you really want to come and go to church without acknowledging the presence of your brother or your sister sitting next to you? How would that go over at Thanksgiving dinner? Who are these people sitting next to me? Love for reals is affectionate. It's familial. Fourthly, love for reals is legit. As Paul has said, love must be sincere. True love can't and shouldn't be fake. That's not love, that's acting. Um, Sorry for all the Greek this morning, but the the Greek word that Paul uses here for sincere is anupakritas. And it's the word from which we get the English word hypocrite. Uh, In the ancient world, a hypocrite was actually the name for a stage actor who used masks on stage to convey different emotions. Happy, sad, angry, jealous. A hypocrite was an actor. Paul is saying true love can't act. True lovers can't be hypocrites. We should love each other, really. Unfortunately, we're good at pretending to love. We're good actors. The website uh, WikiHow, I don't know if you've ever spent any time on WikiHow, it gives instructions on how to do random things, like how to plant a garden, how to uh, pay your taxes. And it's also got some goofy things, too. Uh, There's actually a page on WikiHow, uh, how to pretend to be in love with someone. And it includes six steps. Please don't write these down. (laughs) But let me share a few of the steps with you. Step one is pick someone to fall in love with. Your person should be someone relatively good-looking. You want to pick someone who other people will believe you'd fall in love with. It's good advice. Step three, act happier when that person is around. Whether you're trying to convince the subject of your affections or someone else, you'll be expected to seem in a better mood when he or she is around. Step five, act like you would if your relationship was real. Think about how you'd act with someone you loved. Go on dates. Put time out for him or her. Enjoy yourself. It'll make it seem much more realistic. 
Step six, let the relationship go on for as long as you absolutely need it to. Then end it immediately. Do not go on pretending to be in love with someone ever. If you need help with this, see WikiHow's How to Break Up with Someone You Love. <laughs> or How to Break Up with Someone You're Pretending to Love. We laugh, or not, but we all do a lot of pretending when it comes to love. We fake love our families. Uh, we fake love our spouses. We fake love our friends. We fake love our neighbors. Some of us fake love God. I don't know what I'm doing, but everybody else is doing it. There's a great scene from the old AMC uh, TV series Mad Men. Uh, I was a Mad Men fan, uh, which I'll always remember. It's when Don Draper, the uh, an advertising executive in the show's protagonist, he actually admits tearfully to his wife Megan that he doesn't really love his kids. He pretends to. He pretended to be happy at their birth. Uh, at their birthday parties, he pretends to be happy to be there because that's what he sees other dads doing. He acknowledges it probably has something to do with the fact that when he was a kid, nobody ever really loved him and he just doesn't know how to do it. But, as he tells Megan, he was surprised when he saw his eight-year-old son do something kind to a neighbor. He was surprised to feel something and to feel his heart swell with love towards this son of his. He was so filled with love for his boy when he, at this moment that he actually felt he was afraid he might burst. It scared him because he never felt anything like that. So sincerely from the heart. That's love for reals. And it happens when we admit that a lot of our love for others is fake. Let's be honest. A lot of our love for others is fake. And when we admit that, it actually frees us to focus on what is truly lovable about the other people in our lives. I actually think we'll be surprised at how capable we are at genuine love once we start being honest with ourselves about our difficulties with it and start focusing on what is truly lovable about each other. Uh, when, when, when you're pretending to love other people, it makes it hard to see what is truly lovable about them. Love for reals is legit. It doesn't pretend. And lastly, love for reals is sacrificial. Love doesn't just feel, doesn't just talk. Love gives. Love does, even though it costs us a lot. As Paul says, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Those are things that you do, and those are costly things you do. I actually wish I had a lot more time to talk about uh, what Paul says here about practice hospitality because practicing hospitality is a, is a lost art form. I mean, we are so busy in today's day and age that we don't have the time or the energy to open up our homes and uh, share the love of God with uh, other people. Some people do. Actually, there, there's some people around here at Rooftop who have the gift of hospitality. They practice the gift of hospitality. Julie Zilke comes to mind. Aaron Trage comes to mind. My mother comes to mind. They have the gift, and you cannot spend time in their homes without experiencing uh, the, the presence of Jesus. And even if you don't have the gift of hospitality, we still need to practice it here at Rooftop. We need to welcome our guests and make them feel at home. Just because you aren't on the greeting team doesn't mean you can't be friendly to strangers you don't know. In fact, let me be clear. If you are a Christian, 
you are a greeter. If you are a Christian, you are a greeter. You might not have the cool name tag. But it might even be more meaningful that you don't. If you're a Christian, you're a greeter. Welcome our guests. They are our guests. And what else does Paul say? Share with God's people who are in need. That's something else that real love does. And, and we try to do that here too. We're actually kind of good at it here. Sharing with God's people who are in need. We, we have a benevolence account here at Rooftop that we uh, use to, to help people in need pay for things they can't afford. Uh, we give thousands of dollars away every year to people uh, in need. In fact, if you need some help, let us know because we are eager, eager to be able to help you like that. Uh, fairly recently, in fact, we, we gave uh, money to uh, an individual who, who has legal fees and is trying to keep his family together. And because of your generosity, this guy was able to keep his family together. Because of what you did, this guy was able to keep his family together. Uh, your tithes and your offerings did that. If you've given to Rooftop, you helped keep people in their apartments so that they didn't get evicted to the streets. Uh, you've helped keep air conditioning and heating on for people who couldn't afford it. You, you, if you've been giving, you just gave money to a young couple adopting a child. There's a family here, uh, and they care about... Uh, adoption and fostering like we do. They're trying to add an orphan to their family and uh, they needed some money to help them do that and you helped them do it. You're helping them expand their family. That cost you something. You now have less money because of what you've given our God's work here, but that's what love does. Love for reals is a sacrifice. Love shares with those in need. Jesus shows us this. When Jesus came to earth, he came to show us what true love, love for reals, is in the most graphic way. That's why he offered up his life as a sacrifice for our sins, so he could show us what real love looks like. As he says in John 15, no greater love has anyone than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That's why Jesus came, and that's what he came to do, to show us his love by laying down his life so that we could be forgiven of our sins and live forever with him. In fact, not only is what Jesus did on the cross the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate demonstration of love, but really, it's the only way, it's the only real way that we're going to learn to really love one another in the same way he loves us. I mean, if we resolve at the end of this service to go out into the world and to try really hard to love other people for reals, if we resolve, if we suck it up and press in, and love the people of this world, what's going to happen? We're going to fail. We actually don't have it in us to do that sort of thing. I don't know what's in your heart, but I know what's in mine, and not the love of Jesus. The best we'll be able to do is to pretend to love like Don Draper. And I'm a really good actor, so I can pretend really well. But God doesn't pretend to love us. He loves us sincerely. He doesn't pretend to be happy at our birth. He weeps with joy. He doesn't feign joy at our baptism. He jumps for it. God loves us for reals. And the only way we can love each other for reals is to be filled with God's love for us. It's the only way. As the Apostle John says in his epistle, we love, why? Because he first loved us. We don't love because we heard a sermon. We don't love because we read a book. We don't love because we took a class. We love because he first loved us. 
The more we understand what God in his love did for us, the more we understand love from reals, the more love we can do. And this is what we're reminded of when we take communion. Communion reminds us of the extent of God's love. It's something that followers of Christ have been doing for thousands of years as a visual symbol and a reenactment of who we are as God's people. We are his family gathered around the dinner table celebrating the extent of God's love which was demonstrated in what Christ did on the cross. When we drink from that cup, we're reminded of his blood which he shed. His blood. Those aren't just words. He shed his blood so that we could live forever. When we eat from the bread, we're reminded of his body, which was broken for us so that we could live forever. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the ultimate expression of his love for us and how we must love each other. As God pours his love into us during communion, only then are we able to pour it out into the lives of others. You can't pour out of you what isn't inside you in the first